Welcome to episode 85 of the Search with Canada podcast recorded on Friday the 30th October 2020. My name is Mark Williams-Cook and today we're going to be talking all about EAT, all about expertise, authority and trust. And we're lucky enough to be joined by Lily Ray, the SEO director at Path Interactive, who is an expert in this to talk to us about it. Before we get going, I just want to let you know this podcast is very kindly sponsored by Sitebulb. Sitebulb is a desktop-based SEO auditing tool for Windows and Mac. Speak about it every episode. I use it. Our agency uses it. It's a really, really great tool. Every week, I tend to go through some of the features I like about it and tell you that Sitebulb have a special offer for Search with Candor listeners, meaning if you go to sitebulb.com forward slash SWC, that's sitebulb.com forward slash SWC, you can get an extended 60-day trial of Sitebulb. There's no credit card or anything required. It's dead simple. There's no reason for you not to try it. So I've run through loads of different features of Sitebulb before, and one of the things I want to talk about today was a little bit more about internal link analysis. So especially on larger sites, lots of technical SEOs will know there's normally a lot of mileage you can get out of optimizing internal links. And this ranges from everything from the absolute basics of making sure that your links aren't broken to ensuring that the pages you want to rank that are competitive are linked to from important pages, have good anchor text, etc., etc. I've mentioned previously one of their really great features, which was uh, Sitebulb can calculate the importance of each page and then work out how many links are coming from these important pages to your other pages. But one really cool thing that I like that Sitebulb does is it will tell you their understanding of the internal link location. So this will mean they will tell you if the link is present in the header, in the navigation, in the footer, in the content, in the JavaScript. And this is really important um, from the, again, the absolute basics of sometimes on uh, more complicated sites where you've got a JavaScript in a non-JavaScript version and you're finding broken links, tracking down where a broken link can be on a page can be very difficult. So Sitebulb immediately flagging to you, okay, well, this link is actually in your main navigation across 5,000 pages. It's really helpful to prioritize that and make that uh, go to the top of your priority list. The other thing it can do as well, especially now it can, as we mentioned in the last episode, differentiate between JavaScript and non-JavaScript links, is actually just give you an idea of if those important pages are linked to from when they need to be. So you've written, you've spent ages writing that content, a week researching it, written this brilliant article, is it linked from your main nav, is it linked from the footer, uh, or is it in the content? So really, really helpful breakdown of your internal link structure. Only takes a few seconds. You don't need to worry about crunching the data. It does that all for you. Give it a look, sitebulb.com forward slash SWC. And today we are joined by Lily Ray, who is the SEO director at Path Interactive based in New York City. Welcome, Lily. Hi, thanks for having me. 
thank you for coming. I was just saying thank you for coming at such short notice as well, because I literally just dropped you a message and was like, hey, would you like to come and talk about this? And you're like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> so really appreciate that. I understand you've been really busy uh, with conferences recently. Yeah, I had a, so basically what happened was a lot of these SEO conferences were waiting until the fall to see if they could do the conferences in person. And of course, nobody really ended up doing it in person. So everything became online and then it all just happened at the same time. <laughs> so it was pretty busy. How do you actually find that then um, kind of doing these conferences without being able to see the people sort of in front of you and reacting? Do you find it a lot harder? It's it's hard to know how like people are receiving what you're saying. So that's a little bit tricky. I mean, most of these uh, conference platforms, the virtual platforms have chat rooms. So that's been helpful when people are like, hey, this is great, or they have a question. But it's definitely a different experience when you finish and you know you, you log out and it's like, did people like yeah. it? There's no applause. <laughs> just There's... to a silence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just me and my dog, cool. like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I think it went well. Yeah, my dog Brilliant. liked it. So um, I want to talk to you today about EAT, about EAT. Uh, about expertise, authority, trust, which without getting too meta, I think you have a lot of EAT on EAT in the industry. Is that fair Thanks. to say? Thanks. Yeah, I'm working on it. It's definitely the topic <laughs> that I speak and write about the most. So for those that don't know you, do you want to give a kind of brief history of how you got to where you are and, and why really you took such an interest in EAT? Sure. Yeah. So um, I've been doing SEO a lot longer than I've been focused on EAT. I think that's a misconception that people have about me is that I just came sure. out of nowhere. That's the <laughs> only thing I know about. Um, but no, I, I, I'm an SEO director at Path Interactive. So I've been doing SEO for about just over 10 years and in the agency world for, I think, like eight or nine now. And um, so I lead a team of about 15 or so people at Path Interactive and uh, dozens of different clients in different industries. And my my former agency where I was at for about six years, I was really focused on retail and e-commerce. So that was really my, my strong suit okay. at that point. Um, but what happened when I moved to PATH was we have a lot more clients that are in what we consider the your money, your life, YMYL space. So things like um, healthcare clients, financial clients, and before the August 1st of 2018 update, which was now kind of labeled the medic update, one of our clients that wrote about healthcare topics was like seeing this incredible SEO growth. And when that update rolled out, that was the hardest hit client that we had by far. Hmm. Um, and it sent me down this rabbit hole of trying to figure out what happened. And, you know, Google was like, look at the search quality guidelines. So I looked at the search quality guidelines and it was just so obvious <laughs> that there was this big problem with EAT. Um, which I think we'll talk about, but it basically like the site lacked or they, they didn't demonstrate medical credentials properly. Mm. And the more sites that I analyzed that were negatively impacted by that update, it became more and more clear that like lack of credentials seemed to be this common problem. Okay. So, so, so there was, there's a specific post that kind of sparked my interest in contacting you and we'll link to this, uh, in the show notes. So if you're listening, you can get the show notes at search.withcanada.co.uk and that would link to a post that Lily did for search engine journal. And you, you worked with Bill Swalski, uh, on this post, I believe, which yep. was understanding how kind of Google patents might give us some 
hints as to how EAT is is working. And I did drop uh, Bill a line as well, and hopefully he'll be able to join us as well in a couple of weeks to talk to us a bit more about patents. But I found it a really interesting uh, post because I know Bill does loads of stuff with patents. And to be honest, um, you know, it makes some of us, certainly me, look look sometimes cleverer than I am just because he's done all the legwork, uh, right. kind of going going through them and, and bringing out, you know, extracting what are sort of some quite interesting thoughts. What, what are your thoughts on this approach of uh, analyzing patents as uh, a way to understand what Google's possibly doing? Because we see all, you know, we see people doing, you know, different kinds of controlled experiments and we see, you know, people obviously listening to what Google tells us. How do you think patents kind of fit into this, this picture? Yeah, so, you know, I was really careful to provide a disclaimer in the article because Google hasn't explicitly confirmed that any of the patents that they have or that they've filed for uh, directly play into the organic search algorithms. So I think it's really important to understand that they're not ranking factors. We don't necessarily know which products Google is using them for or not using them for, but there's so many parallels between the patents that they've applied for and what they seem to be wanting to do with their algorithms you know like if you read the search quality guidelines and it's you know we've made it very clear those of us that talk about the guidelines this is not a a guidebook of how to do seo it's not a guidebook of like you know the the things that google's currently actively considering ranking factors and in many cases the things that are in the search quality guidelines they've explicitly come out and said we don't use that as a ranking factor it's just something that you should consider when you're evaluating the quality of your content. So, but there's so many parallels in that document and in what they've filed for as patents. So when it comes to like identifying authors online and assigning a certain level of authority to authors and to brands. So it's like, we, we see what they're trying to do with their technology through patents. And we see where they're trying to make the algorithms go with the search quality guidelines. So it's kind of fair to assume the two things are probably connected. I noticed in that article as well, you linked to a couple of tweets from Danny Sullivan, the Google search liaison. So to give everyone a little bit of background to this, I believe this was from uh, previously, Danny had had said um, something along the lines of Google doesn't have a way to tell exactly how accurate a uh, piece of content might be mm-hmm. and then kind of followed up with these couple of tweets i'll just read them very quickly so danny said uh, also i didn't say accuracy wasn't a ranking factor uh, wasn't what i was asked asked if we could tell if content was accurate no we can't but again signals uh, we look for things we believe correspond to accuracy in that regard damn right having accurate content is a ranking factor it's almost as if uh, it, it, sorry, it's almost like we look for signals that align with expertise, authoritativeness, and trustworthiness. We should give that an acronym like EAT and maybe suggest people aim for this. Oh, wait, we did. And then he links to a, a Google blog post. A little bit salty, I think, totally, right there. Totally. But um, it, it does, like you say, this gives us a hint of them saying, look, you know, this is what we're aiming for. And, you know, having, again, followed a lot of discussions about EAT over the years, I think as you point out, again, there has been a lot of misunderstanding and sometimes people thinking it's just like EAT is a metric, a number Google has, as opposed to these combination of, of things. So could you give uh, maybe our listeners what you would describe maybe as a very brief description of what is the concept of EAT um, and why is it important? Sure. Yeah. So 
again, it exists primarily in the Google Search Quality Guidelines, which is the document that they use to train human evaluators, which they, they do these experiments, like thousands of experiments every year with, I believe, 10,000 plus human search quality evaluators who basically check the quality of Google search results to make sure that it's in line with what's in the document. So the document's 160 pages that explicitly defines what Google considers to be high and low quality content. And that's where the acronym EAT first originated, I think about five years ago. So Google says all over the document, like EAT is the rubric that you should use when determining if something is good or bad quality, especially as it relates to topics like your money and your life and, and safety and security and things like that. So um, that's where it exists. And it, what, what makes it challenging for SEOs is like SEO professionals are so used to having these metrics and these tactics that are like, you know, you can optimize a title tag by putting a keyword in a title tag and you can probably see a ranking benefit from that. But hmm. It, it's not the same with EAT. It's not like, oh, I did this one thing. I put an author name on my blog, but I didn't see my blog increase in traffic three days later. It's like, you know. Um, I think that's a really good place actually to start, which is which is about authors. And this really interests me, especially uh, Google kind of had this authorship thing going at one point, didn't they, with Google Plus and trying to yep. sort of tie in who, who did things. And then it kind of got killed off and pushed away like many <laughs> Google things sometimes do. Exactly. And in this document, you talk about um, a patent called Agent Rank. Uh, do you want to expand a little bit about that and what it is and um, you know your thoughts on Google identifying authors and why they might want to do that? Yeah, so I think Agent Rank was originally filed in 2007, if I remember correctly. and um, it was really interesting. It's basically just talking about like, you know, if there's if there's multiple experts on the page, can we kind of evaluate the page from the level of expertise of all these contributors and being able to identify like if if a, an expert comments on forums in another place, like does that contribute to the expertise of, of that commentary or that forum? So it was like it, it seems like it was Google's original attempt at identifying authors. Um, and just like kind of assigning a level of expertise to those authors. But there's been so many uh, evolutions since that point in terms of what Google has tried to do and then deprecated in its search results. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, rel authors, one of them. And then at some point Google just came out and said, we don't need you to specify who the authors are because we're, we're too smart now. Like we're, we're smarter <laughs> than that. But they haven't made it clear what they meant by that aside from the knowledge graph is an obvious example or things like, you know, establishing authors for Google news. Like they, they haven't told us exactly how they're using author information in the organic search results. So it's this ambiguous area. And I think that's by design. They don't, they don't really want us to know exactly what they're doing because typical SEO behavior is to just spam everything. No, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's like one of the questions I always get from people is like, if I just put an expert's name on my blog, will that work? I'm like, no, it's not the point. <laughs> so this is what I found interesting. So we have these patents around um, identifying authors. And in, the, in your write-up, in your article, you had said, in August 2018, uh, John Mueller clarified that Google does not use individual author reputation as a ranking factor. So I guess my question to you is, um, do you think this is, I, I think it's easy to take that on board as Google doesn't use who authors are, 
or is this a carefully worded thing similar to what Danny said about, you know, um, no, we can't measure how accurate content is, but accurate content is important. <laughs> so because yeah. you go on there to say, you know, Bill, Bill's put in, it's important to distinguish here between an author's reputation, their expertise, their authoritativeness. Um, and before we get on to, you know, writing styles, like how, what do you, do you think authors are important then at some, at some level? Yeah, that was a really interesting curveball, but I love what Bill offered in terms of like, that's more semantics than anything. So I think the person that asked John Mueller, if Google looks at basically external reputation of an author, so like if Google looks at, you know, um, ratings on third-party websites about when someone said, or if somebody has a really controversial reputation, and John said no, but I don't know that that's necessarily him saying that Google doesn't have an assigned val value or attribute for a given author or entity about how authoritative it thinks that that person is on a certain topic. I think those are two different things. I think that Google generates its own EAT evaluations for certain entities, but maybe that's separate from what people say about a person. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it does. Interestingly, a few, I think it was probably a dozen episodes or, go, uh, or so ago, we spoke to Dawn Anderson about information retrieval. And this is closely aligning to this Google patent you mentioned around generating author vectors, which, and this is a quote from the article, enables them to be able to identify authors throughout the internet based on their writing style alone, even when their names are not explicitly mentioned on the page. So that to me sounds is one of those kind of slightly unnerving yeah. <laughs> things. And um, it, it's interesting because it goes in line with other conversations we've had previously as well about G, uh, GPT-3 and Google being able to detect uh, algorithmically generated content versus human written content. Um, and it just seems to me that if it was like a non-starter, this, you know, is, is identifying an author important? Uh, as some component of the ranking algorithm, it seems like they're putting an awful lot of effort into doing it if it's not important. Is that fair to say? I can't imagine why it wouldn't be important. They've made it so clear. Like if you read the search quality guidelines, every single sentence is about, even like there's a recipe that they provided on a new article that's not the search quality guidelines, but it was a recent article that Google, Google published about how it uses human evaluators. And the example it provides is like, we tell them to look at, um, for example, a carrot cake recipe. And when they're evaluating how good the carrot cake recipe is, obviously the first few questions are like, is it a good recipe? Is it easy to follow? But then the next questions are like, did the person that write it, is there evidence that they've written other recipes before? And how good are the recipes that they've written? How much do people like those recipes? So it's like, that's the most innocent example of baking a cake, you know? And Google's still asking people to think about the author's expertise. <laughs> Google love giving recipe examples. I don't know why every, every example I see of totally. Google for something is, is a recipe. Totally. Okay. Um, I think we're going to get probably as far as we can do in this amount of time on authors. And I have loads of other kind of questions I want to throw at you. Sure. Um, and especially a favorite of mine around EAT. And I'll just ask you outright, are backlinks, so external links, in your opinion, part of EAT? Yeah, 100%. They, they've said that actually numerous times. That's actually the only ranking factor that they've confirmed as part of EAT. And it's like they, they just continuously, you know, talk about that every time because they're like, well, we've already admitted this. So we might as well just keep using that as the answer to EAT. Yeah. 
So, I mean, I think that it's sometimes I feel gets left out of the conversation of a way, you know, Google can um, uh, measure things like trust. And just kind of following on to this without straying too far off this um, kind of topic of VAT, I've just seen a lot of discussions recently. Um, and I think it's fair to say it's kind of the link building uh, that's in fashion, if you like, at the moment is very heavily digital PR focused. Um, and this has only been, I think, increased by obviously Google's announcement about, okay, we're going to take no follow as a hint now. So, you know, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe we're, we're kind of counting those links, maybe we're not. But yeah. I've really seen a big divide on opinion for if people are just kind of, uh, we'll say, you know, putting 99% of their outreach effort into things like, you know, newspapers, and they're just earning no follow links. Um, how successful the, these actually are for getting rankings. Do you think this is this has any bearing on EAT and how Google's looking at the types of links we're getting now? I think as it relates to EAT, it's less about follow and no follow, especially given that it's just a hint mm -hmm. now. I think it's more about authoritativeness uh, of the of that industry or like relevance to that industry. So Bill actually provided a really amazing example when we were talking about it. Um, because Bill's a, an attorney and he was an attorney before becoming an SEO, but he, he found an example where this, this lawyer who was highly specialized in one area started a legal blog and it was so beneficial and he just came out of nowhere and the, the website didn't exist before that point, but he, he started providing these super valuable resources or articles for lawyers. And as a result, the lawyers were all linking to him because they found it super valuable. And then he you know, came out of nowhere and started ranking number one for everything because he was so authoritative <laughs> in his field. And then like eventually his company got acquired. So I think that's a really interesting example. Um, and I might've been paraphrasing a little bit what the story was, but you know, the takeaway <laughs> is that like, if you are highly authoritative in one area, you will probably earn um, authoritative links from that area. So if you write really great SEO content, you're going to get authoritative links from the SEO articles. And me personally, like when I write content, I don't care about follow or no follow at all. You know, mm -hmm. if, if I am checking back on the links, I'm just hoping that they're coming from reputable SEO resources. And that builds authoritativeness in whatever category that you're in. So... Notice there we pick the words earn and not build links. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think links <laughs> should another... come because the content that you're writing is relevant to the audience that you care about. That's yeah. my fundamental link building policy. So the other thing that really interests me in this article, um, again, has gone in line with other things we've seen Google doing around Google indexing podcasts, um, understanding the content in there. Uh, they just recently announced as well about jumping to the right point uh, in YouTube videos that's relevant to the query. And you mentioned here about speaker identification, um, which is <laughs> uh, a grant, a and Google was granted that allows them to identify a speaker by using speech recognition. Right. Um, right. So how do you see that kind of fitting in, in terms of, you know, people write, people do podcasts like this, you know, is this podcast going to kind of help me help you? Do you think in the, in the bigger picture? I think it helps both of us. Or, or if it was a more authoritative podcast, we'll say it was a better one. <laughs> no, I think I think it's clear. Like if you if you connect all the dots, they're indexing podcasts. They're you know now able to identify who people are just by their voice. Google Home is a thing that they're trying to push people to have in their homes. You know, like they're just trying to further extend their abilities to understand 
people and who they are and what they talk about. And I think that it's all connected for sure. So it's just another, you know, the fact that they own YouTube and they have all this video and audio content. It's just another place for them to go to understand not only who people are, but what they talk about, how they talk, you know, accents, inflections in their voice, all kinds of data points that they could use. So I think it's all connected. So going out as a as a random stretch here, we've talked about um, links being used uh, to as a as a component to EAT. So you appearing, for instance, on this podcast, if Google knows who you are and decides that you have expertise in SEO and EAT, that's almost a, a, a similar um, like a similar signal to to like a link almost that you're interacting with this other entity that's that's writing about that. Would you think that's that I'm just trying to get an idea for our listeners on, okay, Google can identify people by voice and authors by voice. What is the use of that? Is it to mm-hmm. kind of almost track their fingerprints online and say, well, they've touched this, therefore that's now more relevant to this kind of topic? Yeah. So like think about, I don't know if you've used SparkToro at all. Um, Rand Fisher. Yes, I have. Yeah. yeah. So think about when you put an entity or an author into SparkToro and it tells you, these are all the affiliated podcasts. These are all the affiliated YouTube channels. These are the influencers in that category. Like there's no way Google doesn't have similar con- d- data for a given expert or topic. So, you know, if you see that you're a nutritionist and uh, the Food Network YouTube channel has interviewed you, yeah, that's the same effect as a backlink, in my opinion. That's like making connections because the Food Network is a, an expert uh, brand and they only feature trustworthy people. I'm maybe not. I mean, I'm just making this up as an example. I don't actually use the Food Network very often, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's it's what Google yeah. says in its search quality guidelines. They say when you're evaluating if a chef is an expert, you should look at the other uh, health and nutrition and, and food magazines that they've been featured on. So I think they're trying to replicate that process through all the different uh, data points and, and places on the internet that they can look to. I know we're kind of stretching, really stretching here what we found in patents, but I mean, this is actually key to a lot of the training we give on SEO, which is about not just looking at tactics that we know and have been confirmed are ranking factors, but as as you've alluded to really trying to understand what Google's long-term strategy is and trying to align what you're doing with that. Um, you know, because we can chase our tails all day about, you know, is this definitely this or is it not? And I don't think it's a smart long-term move to rule out doing something just because you can't 100% confirm at the moment it's going to be a thing. Because obviously if you do things that, you know, even Google doesn't measure right now, but are in that long-term kind of goal, there's no reason why it can't retroactively look back at those things as they update their algorithm and and get better as well. Totally. Yeah, Um, I I mean, just to add to that, like there's almost no EAT-focused recommendation that's counter to a good branding strategy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So and yeah. that that links actually in. So in this um in in this write-up, there's one line that particularly interests me, which says, um, so we you you go on to talk about how Google determines if a person or a brand is a real expert or an authority in their field. And you said that some of these implications suggest that faking good EAT is going to be quite 
difficult. And that's, again, you know, you mentioned about Google being specific about ranking factors because <laughs> you're exactly right. As soon as Google is specific about something, people are going to try and optimize that, you know, like the, the big, you know, pre-Penguin, the easiest example was obviously links. And we right. had, you know, huge, quite public, just link selling platforms that were doing, you know, millions of dollars, millions of pounds of business, just trading links. And it was working really well. And obviously it was breaking basically breaking Google to a point. Um, so do you, how do you think EAT and this kind of focus is going to change what SEOs do day to day? Um, if, if, you know, if it's having this, uh, if this less direct impact on, on our work, essentially. Yeah, it's a great question because it um, for a lot of people it's it's not going to be good news <laughs> for you know for a lot of the people that you mentioned like that focused on short term hacks and gimmicks and even to this day I get people responding to my work like oh thanks for pointing out all those things that you should do because I'm just going to go spam them and like I'm going to win you know it's like it that's just not going to work maybe it'll work temporarily but. Uh, real SEO nowadays, especially for sites that are being impacted by these EAT concerns, it's really, really hard work. It's And it's, it's also not necessarily something where you can see the immediate results of your efforts in terms of traffic and rankings and everything. It might mm. take a year. It might take two years, you know, and it's especially if you've already like run into trouble. Like I have some clients where they used to provide really dangerous advice on certain topics and now they have to go back in there and update all the advice so it's not dangerous anymore. And it can take Google a really long time to trust your content. So uh, it, it just makes the work harder. It makes it more, it requires creativity and it also just requires authenticity, which a lot of people don't have time or patience for. So I think that it, it's going to change the SEO strategy for a lot of people quite a bit. That's interesting. So when when we are talking about this, um, Google determining if a person brand is a real expert, if they're an authority, um, we we talked about, or sorry, you talked about in the article, website representation vectors patent, which this patent tells us that Google is capable of classifying websites into various categories of expertise, such as expert, apprentice, and layperson, and rank pages based on the authoritativeness of the content found on those pages. And they give a few examples of how Google might do this, such as analyzing text or images on the site, looking at other website content like links, combination of the above. If we can get more specific, you know, something like images, what, what might Google be looking for in, you know, in images in terms of working out if someone is authoritative or a real expert in their field? Hmm. Well, it's hard to say exactly, but I think that looking at their vision AI tool is a nice place to start because there's some surprising yeah. attributes on there. So like, let's say you put in, you know, 50 different pictures of lawyers and it, it always tells you like this person has this type of look on their face or this type of <laughs> outfit on, or they're in this type of environment where it's like very corporate and buttoned up. Like this is an extreme example, but maybe a picture of some guy in his pajamas, like who's pretending to be a lawyer, they'll be able to tell from the image. Or like, an SEO. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a fake expert, you know, like, like where's the picture of that guy in the suit in the courtroom? You know, like just the little things mm -hmm. like that, where I think that using that tool is very informative because it starts to tell you like 
50 different attributes about the picture and about the person that you didn't even consider something that they're looking at. It's certainly a discussion we've had with other people around things like e-commerce sites and um, using things like stock photography, even on the very basic level of we know some people, uh, their purchase behavior is they start on Google images. So if maybe if they're looking for I don't know, like a, a suit or something, they might do a search and then go straight to Google images. Right. And the people who were using stock imagery supplied by the supplier we're at a disadvantage because Google's not going to show the same photo again and again and again. So it's going yep. to pick, you know, whatever site it decides. Whereas if they've done their own high quality photography, they're way more likely to appear in those that image search. And that did start me down this kind of line of, oh, I wonder, you know, again, how this plays into what Google's expecting in terms of images and reuse. Um and yeah. I just found these quite interesting examples when Google did say something like images, because again, I, I know I've kind of backed you into a very specific corner here. And like you said, there's lots of different products that Google have. Um, so it may not even be, like you say, relevant to kind of universal search results. It might just be a thing for Google images. Um, but the, there's a few other things I did want to pick your brains about in terms of this, um, in terms of especially ads as well. So in uh, we had the, in August, the virtual webmaster unconference that we covered uh, in episode 80. And one thing I've, I found really interesting there was in Google's webmaster guidelines, uh, it talks about uh, not having ads that are, I can't remember the exact words, basically obstructive of your main content, you know, like popping up and kind of tricking you into clicking on stuff. Right. And one of the... Um, one of the myths that was busted by the Google team during unconference was that um, there's no kind of algorithm or no ranking difference for a site as to whether they have ads or not. So we sort of concluded it was more about how you implemented the ads. So it's, it's fine if you have ads, um, mm -hmm. but obviously if you're popping them up everywhere, then that might kind of withdraw from that. But then again, when I go back and read this uh, in your article about this uh, painting around obtaining authoritative search results. So it describes a process Google uses to rank authoritative sites for queries that require authoritative results and how Google can distinguish authoritative sites. I'm going to get tired of saying authoritative in a second. <laughs> uh, from sites that are low quality because they contain shallow content or too many ads. Mm -hmm. And something else that we'll get onto there about this this authoritative sites and smaller kind of pools to pick from is do, do you think and again i'm asking you just to wildly speculate here with me for fun so that's the caveat <laughs> that you know on sites that are maybe going to this your money your life territory is is having ads maybe a bad thing because you're monetizing what's on the page because it se it seems logically to me Maybe if you're trying to sell people off that page, that's not a good thing. Yeah. So this it, is open, open to you to wildly speculate now. We won't hold you to it. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I think uh, it's a great question. So there's a fine line for sure. And Google understands. They've made it very clear. We understand that for many sites, that's how you make money. I mean, the biggest, most authoritative sites on the internet make money through ads. So the New York Times mm -hmm. makes money through ads. That's fine. And that's a business model that is perfectly fine. I think... Uh, the real question is, are you deceiving people with your ads or are you frustrating people with your ads? And even some of the big players like the New York Times, like you could probably ask a lot of people that use that site and they would say, yeah, the ads are frustrating because 
that's how they make money and it, it, they have to be somewhat aggressive with their ads to pay the bills yeah um but there's there's a fine line so when you when you're on a piece of content that is offering medical advice and i'm not going to name names here but when you have quote unquote related articles at the end of the content that say you won't believe this horrible skin condition that this person got with like a really grotesque <laughs> photo and that's an ad and that that's a page that's supposed to be providing like skincare advice that's i think that's a problem and google's made it clear they don't like those types of ads um so and you know healthline is another example they make money off ads but they have ads that are like nicely placed on the page that don't get in your way and they're easy to use they're high quality ads and they have a whole page about the ad disclaimers and how they choose their ads and when they do sponsored content they make it very clear so there's a time and place for it there's a way to do it properly um, and the days of you know providing really low quality content and hoping people click on ads or tricking people into clicking on ads hmm. i think that those days are pretty much over for good if you're if you want seo performance so one thing we did cover in episode 80 as well, and I haven't seen it personally, was uh, Glenn Gabe pointed out when he went back from a site to the SERPs, he was offered a little question essentially on how much did the ads bother you on this site? So Google was literally saying like, you know, <laughs> did the ads basically negatively affect your experience? And I thought that was really interesting because we know they're rendering the pages and, you know, they're trying to recreate what the user's seeing. Right. And it's it's quite a difficult subjective job to work out, you know, if the ads are bothersome. And of course there's, you know, if you really wanted to, you could hide your ads from Google by, you know, <laughs> roboting them out and stuff. Um, and it just, again, it, it clicked to me that this does for me feels like something Google's still working hard on. If yeah. they're, if they're apart from quality raters, you know, they're getting just kind of random people to answer questions like how bad were the ads on this site and trying mm. to build that model of what's good, what's not. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem to be a really big area of focus for them. I think that the the update that we're seeing with core web vitals is yet another example of Google trying to crack down mm. on, on ads that provide a poor experience or more importantly, uh, deceptive like ads or, or experiences. So, um, you know, I provided the example the other day where it's like, you know, you go to a site and like these, uh, you know, converter websites where you're converting an MP3 to a MP4 or something. And then you click download and suddenly you have malware on your computer. Like that's... Yeah, they're, they're hard to use. That takes a lot of internet experience to use one of those sites. <laughs> totally. So it's stuff like that that I think they're really paying attention to. But I mean, what you said about showing Google one thing and showing the user another as it relates to your ads, those are the types of strategies where it's like, you're just going to put so much effort into something that's going to get you in trouble or they're going to catch on to it eventually. I just don't think it's a good approach. So um, time is flying on. So let's uh, kind of talk about your money, your life, Y-M-Y-L. Sure. Um, so very quickly, do you want to give an intro to people that might not have heard of that before and um, how Google decides which sites are your money your life and can we tell if they are yeah so that also comes from the search quality guidelines it, it almost goes hand in hand with eat every time so basically it just defines your money your life and i've said this so many times in two years i should know by heart um <laughs> pages or topics <laughs> pages or topics that affect people's well-being safety happiness or um things like like political awareness, basically. So like news and political content, um, that's all they say. So they don't 
say, here's the 50 categories that we consider your money or life. Um, they do provide some examples where it's like news and finance and legal and health, but there's a lot of gray area. So there's a lot of people that no ask recipes. me. <laughs> I don't think recipes is included on there, but they do go on to say in many cases, you can have good EAT for recipe content. So I have a, a graph that my uh, my graphic designer, Haley, who's amazing, she made me this beautiful image of my EAT meter and how much EAT matters, because I think the more YMYL you are, the more EAT matters. So uh, they actually say in their documentation, EAT matters most when a crisis is developing. So like coronavirus. <laughs> 2020. I can't think of one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, or like elections or things like that. Um, but I think there's a spectrum. So if you write about uh, like fixing guitars and it's your personal blog, like you could just be a hobbyist. That's fine. But if you're writing about how to cure cancer, you need the highest possible levels of EAT. Hmm. So that's the YMYL spectrum. So in the, in the post as well, you talk about pains that look at maybe Google looking at a reduced pool of sites when it's dealing with these sensitive queries mm -hmm. or at least um sites that have quote-unquote high eat and i think it's fair to surmise from what we talked about so far eat isn't a thing you earn overnight just by you know updating some tags on your page right so the million dollar question is if you are a new company in this space um, we'll just say, you know, in a your money, your life space, um, that's maybe, you know, giving medication advice or anything like that. How long can you expect it to take to get into that kind of pool of sites Google might consider trusting? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I love this question because a lot of people, especially in the, the health area, they feel... Don't, don't lie. No, no SEO likes the question, how long is it going to take? No, I mean, <laughs> surely it's unfortunate to have to answer that question when clients have <laughs> limited budgets and no patience, of course. But but um, I don't think it's impossible to break into certain YMYL areas as an expert. It's really about how you approach it. So like, and this is what I, what I love about it is that I think it's become the job of an SEO team. Like we have clients, for example, where there's a person at the company that goes out there and does speaks at conferences and they're well known in the industry. Maybe they've been published on Google, Google Scholar or like they're truly experts. And for most brands, there should be at least one expert. Like, you know, if you're a plumbing company, there's an expert in plumbing, hopefully at the company who's certified and has the right credentials to be fixing the plumbing in your house. But in many cases, they're not communicating on the website who that expert is. So I think it's the job of an SEO team to talk to those brands and say, can we go interview the plumber about their background and where they went to school and what credentials they have? And like, can we make that stuff all clear on the website? Um, and more often than not, the brand's like, oh yeah, we never thought to do that before. Um, so we've been doing this with a lot of our, our clients who do have like experts on taxes or experts on finance or whatever. And we're just tying it all together with like structured data and the places they've been listed online and building out more robust author biographies. Um, so I think it's it's kind of an exciting time in SEO. And to your question about how quickly it can happen, if you're well credentialed and hopefully like people link to you because they trust your content, or maybe you've already been listed somewhere online, and you just, it's just a matter of tying those things together. I think it can happen relatively quickly. You know, maybe in a few months with the right with the right links and visibility. So I think you've actually. I was going to ask you as a kind of closing question around. 
for those managing SEO internally, what they should be thinking about strategically in terms of EAT. But you've literally just answered that perfectly, I think, which is around, you know, um, the SEO team thinking more outside of just we need to make content about keywords and we need to get links, but about how can we get hold of the people that are the actual experts? How can we make that visible on the site, get those people out talking to other people, use the technical knowledge we've got to link it all up and make it visible? Um, I think that's a fair fair summary. And you, you've actually just done that perfectly without even asking. <laughs> there um, you go. <laughs> so I, I think we're already at 40 minutes here. So Lily, thank you so much for taking the time so uh, on the spot just to come and that's what an expert you are that you needed like an hour's you know mm-hmm. notice that we can just come and talk about this and it, it will be fine is there anywhere um have you done any talks recently we can link to about eat if people want to learn more and put something in the blog post yes i'm trying to think which ones are public um i did the search engine journal one earlier this year that's public um and a few ones recently so pubcon i spoke about eat um, the on crawl summit, we love SEO. I just spoke about EAT, a couple ones in Spanish. I spoke about EAT as well. Um, but wow. actually I have a new page on my own personal website, which is lilyray.nyc slash EAT. If you want to find even more about EAT, go and check that out again. Yeah. Lily, thank you so much. And, uh, we're going to be back in one week's time which will be Monday, the 9th of November. So if you do enjoy the podcast, do come back, subscribe, share with a friend, link to it, no follow, follow, we don't mind. (laughs) Uh, And have a great week. Thank you. Thanks for having me.